growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Hey, welcome back. You are on another episode of The Cheat Code. Once again, joined by my faithful co-founder, co-host, Mr. Josh Wagner. Hi, Josh. Hello there. Of course, I am Justin Gray, and we're joined again today by another great guest. Uh, I'm going to pronounce her name correctly, not in the American way, as we um, dealt with already in the pre-call. Natasha Bergier, thank you so much for joining us. Natasha is the CEO, co-founder of an organization called Cable. Um, which deals with a completely different area of the world than uh, Josh, I, or, or anyone at InRevenue uh, normally delves into. So excited to get uh, more information there. But Cable uh, is an organization that uh, on a mission to really reduce and, and prevent financial crime. So um, Natasha, welcome to the show. And, and we'd love to get some insight into exactly how you guys go about doing that. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be here, Justin and Josh. Yeah, so we we are coming at this problem from a, a totally new angle. There's a lot of really great companies that are trying to also reduce financial crime by helping banks or fintechs or crypto companies actually identify suspicious behavior, identify sanctioned entities and that kind of thing. Um, what we're doing is we are helping banks, fintechs, crypto companies understand how effective their financial crime controls are. That is a regulatory requirement if these and if these businesses, if these banks and, and financial institutions are actually directly regulated, and we automate that completely. So we let all of our customers know in real time if they are compliant with their financial crime requirements, and we help them become more effective over time. And so the million dollar question, how in the world did you get involved in this space? <laughs> yeah, I started my career in a totally different place. Um, I studied law, became an accountant, was working in corporate finance and wanted to get into tech, whatever that means, um, and decided that uh, that joining at the time a, a challenger bank, as they were being called back then, was a, a good idea, would be um, hopefully a place of high growth, interesting, something I knew a little bit about. And so I joined what was called Mondo, of course, now is called Monzo back in the UK in uh, January of 2016. And I was doing anything and everything just to try and help the startup um, grow and, and exist. And then we had some fraud. Um, and so I was asked to become sort of one person financial crime team. Over the four and a half years I was at Monzo, I became head of financial crime. And the team that I was responsible for, we built the financial crime controls. So we were building fraud detection, transaction monitoring, the onboarding flows, the sanction screening, et cetera. And there was another team that was doing the effectiveness testing, trying to understand how well all of those controls worked. Mm-hmm. Whereas my team were, were half engineers, half data scientists. We spent millions on technology. This other team that was trying to tell me how effective these controls were, just people, five or six people compared to the 40 of us, no technology they could have used, none on the market, no engineers or data scientists. And so they would manually dip sample 10 accounts a month, and then we'd pay EY or PwC, 100 grand to manually dip sample 100 accounts. And that seemed, yeah, that seemed ludicrous. Um, And so the idea for Cable really came from that. And we have built a product that automatically monitors 100% of accounts, 
in real time to detect any of those regulatory breaches, control failures, and try to help banks become more effective at stopping crime. Sound like a familiar vertical SaaS story, Josh? Yeah, as I was going to say, you know, you don't know that much about in revenue capital, but we look for founders who worked in a specific niche, uh, identified a problem, and crafted a solution around that problem. So kudos to you. It sounds incredible. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, one of the things that we've found, you know, you, you started a new company, you scratch a niche for a problem within your industry, all well and good. It doesn't sound like with your background, you're a technologist, right? It sounds like you are a financier or, you know, in the, in the financial crimes, you obviously learned a lot. So if you were going to build a product, you had to have a technology person to help you build that product. Um, and when we are looking and talking to folks about the cheat code, what helped them scale uncommonly fast, the first thing that came to your mind was finding a good co-founder. So talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, we've definitely run into scenarios in our time as venture capitalists where the co-founder dynamic can be tenuous. So what have you found in terms of finding a good co-founder? I guess the first thing to say is contrary to to perhaps the logical route and and what you're alluding to there, my co-founder is actually not a CTO. And so she is also not an engineer or a data scientist. She is another uh, financial crime subject matter expert. She is our chief product officer. Um, and actually, that was that was an interesting challenge um, that we did face, though. How do we hire brilliant engineers and data scientists, data engineers, uh, to help us realize this vision when neither of us could write the first lines of code? Um, yeah. the, the first couple of people we hired uh, are still with us today. Uh, I still can't really believe they joined us. Um, I know what the website looked back, like back then. We had nothing at all. Uh, and both of them took a huge risk and joined us and they are, they're still integral to, to the product, to the team today, which is really cool. Um, but to your, to your actual question of, of my co-founder, Katie, uh, yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting story. I didn't intend to have a co-founder. I didn't, no one immediately sprung to mind when I was starting cable. I left Monzo, I was writing the business plan and I was sending the business plan to Katie and she was giving me some comments and some feedback and we were chatting about it a lot. She had not been at Monzo for very long and I had pulled her away from Square, now Block of course, to join me at Monzo in our leadership team. And so I assumed that she would want to stay at Monzo for a bit longer and I had started early, early conversations with investors for our pre-seed round and I got a lot of questions of don't you want a co-founder? Why do you think you can do this alone? And my answer to them was, I may well want a co-founder and I don't, I'm not fooling myself about how easy this will be, but I do not think that I should have a co-founder for the sake of having a co-founder. If I'm going to have a co-founder, it has to be somebody that absolutely agrees with the, the vision and the mission and what we're trying to do here, deeply understands the problem um, and no one has sort of fallen into my into my lap, or maybe that's the wrong way to say it. Fallen into my sort of line of sight that that would be the right that would be the right person. Um, and I was I was having these early investor conversations, written this business plan. Katie had been feeding into it, and I started to think about the things that I felt like I was good at and bad at. And I'd gone through a a a roller coaster of a, a sort of management journey at Monzo. Received a lot of feedback. Some of it very tough to hear, some of it very hard to implement. But I felt like I had changed a lot 
over the time I've been at Mongzhou and become quite self-aware. Maybe, you know, I think everybody could always be more self-aware, but I felt like I, I had a pretty good idea of what I was good at and also what I was very bad at. And all of the things that I was, was realizing that I was bad at and that sucked my energy, Katie was excellent at. And we were going back and forth on the business plan. And I was having all these thoughts about the, the gaps I had in my skill set and the things that she was great at. And then one day I just said, Katie, why don't you be my co-founder? And she said, yes, wait, am I supposed to think about this? And that was how it happened. And, and so how, how long had you guys worked together in the past? And so I was like, you know, at least uh, Bongo, but was there experience prior to that as well? No. So we had worked together actually for just under a year at Monzo. Um, we'd worked very closely together. Um, I had spent a lot of time working directly with her. I think that I am a, a fairly good judge of character. And from the first moment I met Katie, before she even joined Monzo, I, I knew pretty well what she was about and sort of her, what her morals were. And the relationship as we worked together was very easy. She had a lot to do at Monzo. It was a very stressful job. The way she handled herself um, was very impressive. All of our communication was really easy. And then as I was nearing leaving and we were speaking more and more outside of work, um, the, the understanding that we had about what we were talking about, about what cable could be, and our alignment on the type of company that we might want to work at or build, it was just all in sync. And so strange hindsight 2020 question, which is always difficult to answer, but do you think if that seed had not been planted in your mind in terms of like, why don't you have a co-founder? Uh, you know, isn't that something that you should be considering? Do you think that that you still would have reached out and, and kind of had that introspection about gaps in your own skill set where you would pursue a co-founder? Yeah, it's hard to answer, of course. Um, I think I probably would. I actually found the investor questions. I was sort of wanting to prove them wrong more than trying to fall into line in that regard. Sure. So um, I I think I would say I probably would have gotten there anyway, but it's always hard to turn, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. I, I love the whole self-awareness, strengths, and weakness talk, Jack, because it's something I, I'm really into. It, what you don't know about me is my background is in sales, not in venture capital at all. And I think that salespeople are some of the least self-aware people on the planet. And I'm also a big fan of leaning hard into your strengths and kind of saying that fuck with your weaknesses. Um, so that's just a little bit bit on me. But when you think of yourself as an employee taking all this feedback and saying, oh, this is what you're great at. This is what you suck at. Trying to having the hard conversation and then putting your putting yourself in the seat as a founder do you think all that matters or as a founder is it more i need to charge hard at what i'm good at and surround myself around with, with people that can fill the gaps i i do think it matters i think the company that we're trying to build is a company that cares deeply about making sure people enjoy what they're doing every day we don't want to lose people because they feel burnt out i left monzo because i was burnt out um, we have what we call our operating system, which we wrote really, really early on when we were four or five people, which is our set of principles, which some people might just call values. We call them principles because we also include what that means, why it's important, what it means you should be doing and what it means you shouldn't be doing and how you can actually implement these things. 
So it's more of a, a playbook about our culture rather than just a list of words on a page. And uh, one of our principles is aim to improve. And that has to apply to me as well as everybody else in the company. If I want one of our superstars to step up and become a people manager, they're not going to get it right to begin with. They're going to take on feedback and start trying to get better and improve at the things they're not very good at. And if I'm asking them to do that, then I also need to be aware of what I'm not good at. I need to be willing to receive feedback and I need to try to improve at the things that I'm not good at. And then you've got the obvious issues of, you know, what if Katie is on holiday and what if what if Katie were to end up, I don't know, needing to be out of the business for a month or two? There are things that she's excellent at that admittedly I'm not as good at, but that I will have to step into. And I, 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 I see, I appreciate, I understand the view of um, really leaning into the things you're good at and, and just playing on those strengths. I don't want to build a, a stereotypical Silicon Valley business, which is all about hyper growth. I want to build a thoughtful company that exists for a very long time, which is based on a foundation of, of, a, of quality people that are trying always to improve and get better. I love it. And I reserve the right to be wrong at any time. <laughs> well, I'm me. <laughs> so, so you brought up a concept there that I think is is super critical and something that people don't spend enough time on in terms of trying to predict the future, right? Like, what if what if these scenarios, right? So, it sounds like you you guys had potentially a substantial conversations around those, right? Like, what what if someone needs to go on leave? Like, what are, what are, what what are we ultimately aiming at? Like, what's our desired exit? Like, all of those different scenarios that most people don't spend time on but it, of course you know uh, uh every single time end up rearing their their ugly heads how number one what made you kind of go down that path and and how much time did you really spend there kind of thinking through different scenarios and trying to to gain alignment up front it's a really interesting question because i i've seen all of those questionnaires those things that you should ask your co-founder before you commit you know mm-hmm. you should really align on all of these things and I'm sure they're very helpful for a lot of people. The the fundamental thing that underpins my relationship with Katie and how we have tried to build cable is we have the same moral code. We know that if faced with a similar situation, we'll ultimately try to do the, the same sort of thing, the same right thing, the same way to make people right. Mm-hmm. And we trust each other. And so that trust that exists enables us to come up against uh, any sort of issue, any any difficult conversation and feel confident on both sides that we will get through that. Um, so we have had conversations about, you know, what will we do if these things happen or how will we deal with exits or anything like that? And we've had those conversations and we've talked about it, but we also have absolutely no idea what any of those situations will look like. And so we could spend hours, weeks, months trying to figure out every scenario or we could have the conversations that are underpinning all of those things do we want the same thing ultimately are we both trying to achieve the same thing do we have the same moral compass will we treat our employees our customers our investors with the same respect that we would want to be treated with and if so the answers to all of those difficult things that we'll face we'll be able to figure out together um and it's that sort of respect for each other and that trust that that helps us figure those things out as they come along. 
So do you think yeah. it's, it would be possible to, to have that level of understanding and that trust had you not worked together previously? Like that, that's something that comes up often when we're talking to founders. And personally, I could not, I could not start a business with someone that I had not worked with in a pretty deep capacity previously. I'm curious as to, as to your take on that. I agree with you. Um, I don't think I could. You don't know how people managing. It's such an important part of starting a company. How are you going to treat your employees? What do you expect of them? How will, how will they see what you're doing and apply that to the people that they manage? You have to know what those things are and you can talk about it hypothetically, but until you see it in practice, you just don't know. I agree with you. And I, I actually think the, the first year, just over a year of Katie and I working together, Cable, was definitely the hardest. And it's probably because we had not worked together for long enough previously. It was just under a year at Monzo. Um, when we were at Monzo, I had been her boss. And when we started Cable, there was an imbalance that made me uncomfortable. I didn't ask her questions. I would say stuff and she would just, you know, see to me and I would try and get her to push back more. And it took about a year. It was actually a year and three months because we had our last very, very difficult conversation in March of 2021. Um, uh, we, we had a lot of very difficult conversations and a lot of that was about rebalancing the relationship that we had to fit cable structure versus what we had had at Monzo. Yeah, really interesting you say that. Yeah, you know, another insight for you is Justin and I are co-founders in this business, but I worked for Justin for 10 years, right? He was the founder of the last company that we exited. So there is, I'd say we're only seven months in. So that <laughs> balance is still trying to right size itself, right? And uh, you know, you have those little feelings in the back of your head every time, like, wait a minute, he's not your boss. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I totally get what you're saying. It's certainly an interesting dynamic, but I do also agree with you that level of trust of having worked with someone for some period of time. I mean, Dustin mind's pretty significant. I mean, it was almost a decade. So there's a lot of uh, equity built there in the relationship. But um, I, I do think it's hard to just trust what you see on paper or what you hear in any number of interviews without seeing it in action. And that leads me to kind of something you touched on a little bit earlier, which was you mentioned the word culture. And it sounds like you were very carefully curated culture through you and, and your co-founder. Um, how does that continue to manifest itself? Because, you know, Justin and I ran up against that in our last company uh, where we had, looking back, a really phenomenal culture and saw some of that change after our acquisition. But curious your thoughts on culture and how you continue to curate and manicure that. Yeah, it feels actually like we're at a, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a changing point now with the company. We've just brought on our first C-level hire, a chief revenue officer. Um, very, very experienced. She's got a lot of experience in uh, in a broad range of industries, all of which are, are super relevant to what we're doing. And I have just moved to America. And our team has grown about a third in the last four months. Um, we've just raised our Series A. So there are a lot of, uh, a lot of things happening now that are causing us to pause and say, how do we continue to, to embed this culture? What do we need to check in on, relook at, try to put in place to make sure that it, it still exists? I think culture, and this is, this, this is partly depressing and it's, I think it's true, which is why it's depressing, very much is just based on the founders. How 
the two people, the three people, the one person, whoever it is, those people that started the company, how they act, how they speak, how they treat people and the things that they say they expect, that is what ultimately becomes the culture. However much writing you want to put around that. The, our operating system, which I alluded to, the principles in there, those are things that deeply matter to me and Katie. And we've hired people for whom those things also matter deeply, um, which is great. But ultimately, that's what Katie and I care about. And it's, you know, that can be a terrible thing too, right? I mean, we're not always right. And the things that we care about are not the things that everybody should care about all the time. Um, and that that is a really interesting interesting thing to think about. And so I think the first and most important thing is that the founders of a company are truly themselves around the people that they hire and the business they're trying to build. I was talking to one of our newer hires recently about having having them relax into the role and be themselves in all of the, the different types of meetings we have. I am probably to a, to a worrying degree, I am the same person at work as I am at home and the same person with my colleagues and with Katie as I am with my wife. Uh, I just can't help it. It's just what it's just how I am. Um, but that means that the people at, at Cable know what they're getting. And when I say, okay, well, I care about this thing, it's because I actually do care about it in my day-to-day -day life. And it's not just writing on a wall. I guess some more, maybe some more practical things, which is maybe where you were trying to trying to get to, Justin. So we we are fully remote and we have quarterly meetups somewhere that one of our team lives. So we've been to Greece and Portugal and Poland and Romania and uh, Canada recently and we're off that to Italy. Horrible. We're off to <laughs> yeah, off to Italy in October. Um we are actually. And uh <laughs> and uh we spend a week together once a quarter where we really spend time doing forced fun, right? Like we set stuff up to make people have fun together. <laughs> and it it can feel, I imagine, for for new cables who come in, it can feel a little bit weird um, and it might feel jarring and a little bit forced but actually by the end of that week the bonds that are formed really do make people sort of get through the next three months of the remote work and and doing the the hard graft and then we get back together again and we do it all over again that's a really key piece of our of our culture is getting together and making sure we have enough time for planning and work but also for having those bonds to to build so let's talk a little bit about the other side of that coin, right? It sounds like the operating system that you guys have built is, you know, what I would describe as a, as a functional set of values, a functional culture document to where like you're hiring, you're firing, you're disciplining, you're rewarding in accordance with alignment with those beliefs. Like how do you, how do you conduct that alignment when you see deviating behavior or maybe someone's not working out and so on? Like how do you functionally use that framework to to either realign or, or or make perhaps a harder decision. Yeah, we have probably more structure around this than other companies of our our size and our stage. We have been running since the beginning uh, reviews and performance processes. So everybody has a manager. Everybody has a six weekly review with their manager. We have a a, a single page Google Doc which um, everybody runs through in those six weekly reviews. It's fairly light. I hated reviews at Monzo. They always took forever to write and giving people feedback was painful and getting feedback was painful and it was exhausting. So what we've tried to do is make these really quick and easy to fill in. They should take an hour or so to, to fill in with how you think you're doing. 
And in that review document, it asks, which of our operating system principles did you find hard over the last six weeks? Which do you think that you excelled at and why? To go along with that, everybody in our company has a quarterly job description. When you join a company, you have a you join based on a job description, right? You, you apply based on a job description, you start, and then you throw away the job description and you do whatever you're told. That's how it works. And what we wanted to really build into Cable was the discipline of saying, okay, we know things will change. We know your job will be totally different in three months, but we need to know what that job is. You need to have clarity on what we expect from you. And you need to know how all of this fills into our uh, feeds into our company goals. So we have these six weekly reviews and we have these quarterly job descriptions. And we also have company OKRs. So we're fairly structured in that regard, and I expect more so than other companies. In those six weekly reviews, we have that alignment on those operating system principles. We then have six monthly performance reviews. So everybody speaks to their manager every six months, and it's the same review document based on your quarterly job description and based on our operating system. And then Katie and I and our people leader, Amanda, we get together with all the managers one by one and say, how are they doing? Is this person exceeding our high expectations, meeting our high expectations, or not meeting our high expectations. And we plot everybody on a matrix and we understand where everybody is sitting. And if somebody is not meeting our high expectations, then we do um, it put in place a performance improvement plan. And we, tr we try to be very, very clear from the outside about what that means. This is, this is not you're being fired in three months or six months. This is, we want you to start meeting our high expectations and these are the things that we need to see. Let's check that your job description is clear about this. Let's check that the things that you're working on do feed into our quarterly key results and our annual key results. And you'll have plenty of check-ins with your manager to make sure that's true. So we try to embed the operating system. And so you answered what was going to be my question, which is if you and Katie actually perform that together. So that, that team of three, I'm going to make a, an assumption that there is a surprising amount of alignment in terms of how you guys are feeling towards an employee as you do that review. Is that correct? Or is that you find that there are, you're oftentimes have different perceptions? That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think back. We are usually aligned pretty closely on probably 50 to 75% of the people, but there's often quite a lot of debate about a handful of people. Interesting. We are 24 people today, and that means that we so Katie runs our product and engineering orgs, and I run sort of everything else on the go-to-market side and the ops and people side. It's pretty, it's pretty common that I won't have uh, sort of passing interactions with some of our engineers and product people in the quarter. Now, I try and avoid that by putting one-on-ones in, and we have all hands and all that kind of stuff. But due sort of like a, a normal work day, I may not be seeing what they're doing and speaking to them. And similarly, Katie with our go-to-market ops and people org. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a good amount of debate over a handful of people, I would say. The biggest takeaway I've got there for like anyone listening to this, like this obviously sounds like a massive amount of work because it is. And I 1000% agree it's the only way to curate culture. Like I always used to hear, we've got too many reviews and one-on-ones, but... I think it's something that's so critical, regardless of size, as you scale, that you you figure out a way to maintain that amount of rigor, because 
the the opposite is is the absolute recipe for disaster in my opinion yeah we and we yeah. we try we're constantly battling with is this too much process and how can we re- remove some of that it is one hour of prep and one hour of meeting every six weeks is basically what it is for the managers yeah. it's obviously a bit more right yeah yeah you're you know I would, there was a time when i probably would have argued with you on the cultures driven by the founders but having gone through the acquisition that we went through, I can tell you that it's 100% accurate. When our companies merged, there had, there was two heads of the snake essentially, right? And you could see the differences in the two cultures personified by those two individuals. I mean, that was it. And it created conflict. I think that's just, there's really no other way to put it. So it's interesting you say that. Um, and then the other thing that you were just mentioning using the operating system to curate that feedback and that culture, you know, a lot of folks join a startup because of the opportunity for upward mobility and people are always looking for career advancement. Does that help you provide clarity and structure in terms of what career advancement could look like even at your stage? Yeah, for sure. So our head of data, she joined as a data engineer. She was our first hire. She became our, she joined as our data lead. She's now our head of data significantly more responsibility and involvement with strategic conversations and decisions. Um, we've got plenty of people in the company who have had promotions or we are thinking about promoting and trying to get yeah. ready for those promotions. The only way, something that we talk about with our team as well, which is which is related. One of the experiences that I saw playing out at Monzo was that people brought in from external, from externally, um, they were paid more. And they were brought in at a higher level than people who had been there for a long time. Super common at startups. And it is so demoralizing. I mean, I was, I was subject to this too, right? I, I was head of financial crime and my replacement was paid uh, 70,000 pounds more than me the day that he started. And that was something that, again, Katie and I from the outset just knew. Like, we didn't want that to be a thing. We had both been at startups and seen that and felt that. And it's demoralizing. And you lose people because of it. And so... We have to promote people when they're ready, but we also have to provide opportunity for pay increases and more equity and for people to feel respected. And so we talk about how you know, the most important people to our company are the employees who are there today. And so we have to treat them how we would want to be treated. We have to give them the opportunities to be paid more, to receive promotions, to get that coaching that they need. And so uh, alongside our six monthly performance um, process where we do promote people if needed or give people pay rises. We also do market mapping. This role six months ago was paid, you know, 100k. This role now in the market is paid 105k. Well, then everybody in this role in our company needs to now earn 105k. Yeah. And you, and you well, do that on that cycle as soon as you find that information, or you know, I, I would assume if you had to wait for someone's annual you know anniversary and so on that would that would be a bit of a challenge so we don't do it in the first i think it's the first year of somebody joining we wouldn't do it based on market mapping um but after that yes we do it every six months and we also do inflationary pay rises to stay in line with the inflation in all the different countries that all of our employees live in on an annual basis it's a big one i think so so the, the I mean again very intentional system for for fostering culture and and, and measuring performance against it. How do you guys apply that to the two of you? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. 
I was literally about two hours ago asking one of my investors to give me some feedback. I, no one gives it to me anymore. It is it is so frustrating and it's it's going to be damaging for the business if I do not receive feedback. Um, I'm constantly asking the team for it and everyone I manage, I'm always saying, you know, what can I do for you? How can I make your life better? What can I do better? And no one ever says anything. And that is obviously not because I'm doing everything well. Um, so... Yeah, it's really, really difficult. We we hold each other to it, Katie and I, um, just in our our regular conversations. So we have a weekly review every week. We have an hour together. We have an ongoing Google Doc, and we're all week dropping in things that we want to talk about. So we know what's on each other's minds, and then we talk about it all at the end of the week. And we hold each other to it at that point in time, for sure. Admittedly, that's a lot easier for me to do towards Katie um, I'm the CEO, that's more natural than for her to do to me. But I'm constantly pushing her to do that and asking for feedback from our investors and our team. Yeah, it's harder though, I think. Yeah, I don't know about it. The, the, the lefty thing is interesting because, you know, Justin and I are super close with the founders that, that we invest with and maybe cross the lines of feedback from time to time. How do you take that feedback uh, from, from investors, you know? depending on how into your business they are. I don't know how, you know, day-to-day they get involved, but how, how does that feel to you? So from the investors recently, it's been mostly useful. That is not because um, I'm amazing at taking feedback. It's probably because uh, we're, they're still learning how to give me feedback and how I might take it and how I might sure. implement it and that kind of thing. Taking feedback generally, I've been through all the different emotions you know when i received feedback at monzo there was a period of time where i found that very very hard i remember i had a, a particular manager and i was uh it was very difficult for me and i would cry basically every time i spoke with them um because it was just it was painful to hear i was a terrible manager and all this feedback was awful and i hated it and i didn't want to be that person and it took me you know six months of like introspection and trying to figure out how the hell i do better at this thing for me to finally start to get out of that and and be comfortable receiving feedback and the the big breakthrough for me was feedback is really like one person's perception of what you're doing and it is it may not be right and that's not me saying that people should ignore feedback and that feedback is always wrong but you have to reflect on it and put it into context it is just one person's perception of what you're doing and they have all their shit going on too. So whatever is happening in their life, outside of work, inside of work, how they're sleeping, how they're feeling, how their health is, that one will impact the feedback they're giving you as well. And so you have to take the feedback and try and like filter out what it is that you think you can apply to your job, to the people that you're working with that will truly help them and and see the the feedback from the noise that it comes with. Yeah, when you mentioned, you know, the struggle in terms of, you know, how how do you gather feedback and, you know, who reviews you and so on. Like we used to do, you know, subordinate reviews. Everyone that reported to me would would give me a review. And I think to that point, that's one of the most difficult things about that exercise because you at that altitude can also see what feedback runs counter to what the business needs to do and <laughs> what is just something hard that has to be overcome versus, oh, I'm really bad in that area and I need to improve. So yeah, I mean, that that's certainly a learned skill that is never perfected. Yeah. 
one thing that we've done at, at Cable to try and make that easier for people is when everybody joins, we have them fill in how they would like to give feedback and how they would like to receive it. Some people like to receive it in written form, have, have an evening or an hour to reflect on it and remove the emotions from it and then have a conversation. Some people just want immediate feedback as soon as whatever the thing is that needs feedback is given, you know? And so we have this page in our, in our Notion wiki, which is how everybody likes to give and receive feedback. And we encourage people before they give feedback to check in how, on, how this person likes mm -hmm. to, to have that. Yeah, we had something similar there called user manuals. It's like such yeah. a such a critical piece of insight. So taking, you know, we, we've talked through a lot of things at this point. And still, I think the challenge is, is looming and, and, and oftentimes insurmountable when like someone's going out and considering bringing on a co-founder, right? Either because they've gotten feedback that they need one or they've made that realization. What, what are the most critical insights that you would provide to to someone in that position? I think the most important thing is the willingness to treat it like a romantic relationship in many ways. You have to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to completely open up with that person. And you have to be willing to hear things that might be difficult and then wake up the next day and completely move on. And those are, those are things that like you don't really necessarily even do with your friends because so often with your friends, like you're hanging out with them and, oh, they're annoying you in this certain way. And then you just don't see them for a week. And the next time it doesn't matter because they're your friend and they're not there every day trying to talk to you about stuff that matters to you. The only kind of comparable relationship I think is, you know, a partner, a, a husband, a wife, a partner, and you have to be willing. There's no point going into this. There's no point trying to get a co-founder unless you truly think you're willing to open up to them and be vulnerable with them and allow them to do that to you and then treat them with, with respect, the same respect that you would give to your partner. Yeah. Strangely, I think a lot of individuals, even though they're looking for a co-founder, they brought one on, they don't truly view that on an even plane. Especially if, you know, that business has been in existence for, you know, a, a while now, six months, 12 months, something along those lines. It almost seems like people try to use that as a, a lever to, yeah. you know, provide equity or to, you know, pay a bit less in, in salary and so on and, and, and create that involvement. But to your point, um, it's an incredibly personal relationship. That's totally true. And I, I just think that there is no true co-founder unless you start the business together. Giving titles is cheap and it's often a very useful tool to get people on board who you think are excellent to enable you to hire them, as, as you say, with lower salary and more equity. Those, those are great things. But you then need that transparent conversation with you. I will give you this title, but that is probably the time that you have that conversation of this is our contract around what being a co-founder means. And I think I think that's a different thing than what I'm trying to talk about. I'm, I'm glad you said it. It's such a great line. <laughs> that's the line. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've we've covered a lot, right? The the big the big takeaways here, obviously, I love the relationship aspect of the co-founder. I do think it is incredibly personal and it, it can't be done. They're not a real co-founder unless you started it together. And it's something that there's, a, there's some trust there, validated trust, probably over a period of time, not just through a series of interviews that you don't know anything about that person. I love the deviation in the culture. I think that was a great spin that we took off in this episode just because, you know, 
in order for it to be something of value, I do think it has to be carefully curated and you have to think about it intentionally and, and drive it in the business. I, I know while it wasn't my business, when, when Justin ran lead MD, um, he put a lot of effort into curating culture and tried many times to find people to offload that burden off of himself and it never worked. And, uh, he, he was the, uh, the person that drove that and grateful for it. Certainly. Uh, but yeah, anything else we should know, Natasha, about cable, about you, where can we find you? We'd love to hear it. Yeah. You can find me on LinkedIn these days, Natasha Vernier. Um, I, I can't call Twitter X, so I won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> uh, mostly, mostly on LinkedIn these days. Awesome. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. Super insightful. Uh, for everyone listening, as you know, of course, we're going to ask shamelessly that you subscribe, uh, turn your notifications on, uh, hit us up on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Natasha, again, thank you so much for your time. Very insightful and appreciate you joining the Cheat Code. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.